Welcome to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative, a Boyer-inspired national consortium of leading research universities dedicated to strengthening and, if you will, reinventing undergraduate education. We're your hosts, Steve Dandeneau, Executive Director, and Liz Mock, Assistant Director, and we come to you from Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, the host of the Reinvention Collaborative. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Denon, Dean of Undergraduate Education and Vice Provost for Teaching and Learning at the University of California, Irvine. A longtime RC member, Dr. Denon hosted a national meeting of the Reinvention Collaborative at UC Irvine in 2017. He's also a professor of physics and astronomy who is known for bringing science to the public by relating it to popular culture. You may have seen him on the History Channel's Ancient Aliens and as the superhero scientist on the YouTube series Fascinating Fights. Hello, Michael. Hello. How's it going? Good. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's we great are to delighted. be here. Yeah, we I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Thank you. We have a very straightforward initial question for you. Uh, how is it that a physicist with expertise in bubbles and sand and foam and so forth came to serve as UCI's vice provost and undergraduate dean. You know, give our listeners a sense of how something like that happens. Well, the first step was complaining about how my colleagues teach for 22 years. Um, <laughs> and, and so, right, if you complain about something enough, you get put in charge of it. But on, on, a, on a serious level, I, I have been, I describe myself as a physics education research groupie. So my whole career, I've been an experimental soft condensed matter physicist. That's the technical term for someone who studies materials in their lab, you know, that are soft, hence soft condensed matter, but usually fluids, liquids, gases, other states of matter like that. And, but at the same time, I've always loved teaching um, right from the beginning. And I've always been intrigued with the question of how do we know, you know, what are good or bad or better ways to teach? and my career, you know, nicely was timed with physics education research as a discipline taking off. And I had a great opportunity early in my career to go to some workshops on this, got connected with some of the people in the field, and really it influenced my teaching strongly all you know, right from the beginning of my career. And so a few years before I became vice provost, the campus had a task force that I ended up on to evaluate our administrative structure in this space. And I realized how much, you know, my career in, in sort of service, because the other things I had done was serve on our Council of Educational Policy. And, you know, in the UC world, that's very related to what's happening in the education space and teaching. And so I had some very strong opinions from both of those periods on how we might want to structure things at UCI in particular to elevate both the undergraduate education space, but teaching in general to a vice provost level, just like you have a vice chancellor of research, because teaching, I feel, has gotten sufficiently complex in the questions and issues, particularly around digital aspects and online and technology, but other areas as well. So the campus, other people felt the same, and the, you know, our task force recommendation was taken, and this new position was created. And through a, a rather strange process, first I was on the search committee, a search failed. I decided I actually wanted the position. 
I served as interim dean. I applied and I got the job. <laughs> I, I share that piece because I, I like to emphasize to our students that career paths aren't always straight lines. And a lot of what you have to be have to do is be really open for an opportunity that you don't expect through the normal path of things. Are you saying you hired yourself for your own job? Is that what no, you I was not on the I was not on the search <laughs> committee when I applied. Let's be clear. An excellent question, Steve. Excellent question. Um, I neither bribed myself nor hired myself. <laughs> you used the phrase a minute ago, strong feelings or strong opinions. What do you think? Where, where did you get the strong feelings about teaching and learning, whereas maybe other people don't develop those as readily? You know, well, first of all, full disclosure, my, my father is, was a math professor, recently retired about a year ago. My mom was a high school math teacher. And so I grew up in, a, in an education environment. So that clearly had some initial effect. And, you know, I, I did, you know, I, I loved tutoring when I was in high school and college because for me it was an easy way to make money. I, I discovered early on that I really, really enjoyed explaining things to people and helping people on their own come to understand things where they would, you know, to watch someone go from not understanding something to understanding it and getting it, I found very satisfying. But the other thing I did a lot of with my kids, coach and coach youth sports. And it was an interesting sort of avenue into teaching. There's things we do in sports because I think our unconscious assumptions are very different than when it comes to teaching that I found very powerful and made me very passionate about things we do in teaching. And I'll just give you one example that's kind of obvious in the sports world. Unconsciously or consciously, the best coaches know that if their players are never making mistakes, you're not pushing the limits and edges of what you can do. And so you are always creating safe spaces to make mistakes because if your players aren't comfortable doing that, they don't improve. In education, we've unfortunately, I would argue, reached a place where it's much harder for students to feel comfortable making mistakes and to learn from them. And that's something I, I felt very passionate about that we needed to figure out ways to change and improve. The other one that I hadn't even realized to like halfway through my coaching career is most people know when they've made a mistake, but they don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, you laugh, but right? Think about it, right? Because the definition of a mistake is something obviously went wrong. You know, and, and the, the, you know, soccer, which I coached, you know, if you lose the ball, you probably made a mistake because you don't have the ball anymore. If you miss the goal, you probably made a mistake because you didn't score the goal. In physics, if you never get an answer, you're probably doing something wrong, right? What they don't know is what they're doing right. So my example in soccer is, you know, if, if, if you as a young player make a particular pass or a particular run and it doesn't work out, you might assume it was your mistake, not realizing you did the right thing and another teammate hadn't learned to do the right thing yet. Or you did the right thing, but the defense happened to do something even better. Likewise, if I'm working through a physics problem and I'm not getting an answer, all I know as a student is I'm making mistakes. I don't know which aspects of it I did right. And as instructors and teachers, we often are really just grading the mistakes, not the stuff that's correct. And we're not reinforcing the good things our students are doing. So those are areas I think about, like institutionally and structurally, being a vice provost of teaching and learning and a dean in undergraduate education, you can start asking these structural questions. How is our grading set up? What's our 
culture around how courses relate to each other, that as an individual instructor in your class, you can never hope to impact. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, coaches and teachers, good coaches and good teachers, both uh, have high standards, set the bar high, but also provide support exactly. for reaching that goal. And I think you're onto something there with that analogy. It makes a lot of sense. Let's ask you a second question. Here you are at the University of California, Irvine, which has long been highly respected, but of late has been noted in a particular way, which we think is very important. The New York Times has recognized UCI as a university that is doing the most for the American dream, ranked number one yes. in their assessment of universities with respect to social mobility. It's quite a thing. And actually, quite a few of the UC system institutions are at or near the top of their list. What's going on there at UCI and in California as a whole? You know, What are you and your colleagues doing to support upward social mobility? And I was curious how much of it is very intentional on your part and how much do you feel like you're just being swept along by larger forces in society and culture? So I think it's actually a third choice, Steve, I'm going to argue. (laughs) Part of it's intentional and it's growing even more intentional as we learn where we were. I think part of it is structural and it's structures that weren't originally designed for this purpose but have turned out to be very effective to support this purpose. And so we have a lot to learn from there. And part of my job and what we're doing forward is to study these things, to make sure that our guesses are right and we don't mess up our great success by changing the wrong thing going forward. But one thing that UCI has is it's a very large public research university. So the nature of that means that we're drawing often from a sort of diverse population of students that a private might not be able to draw from, say, from a financial perspective. Because even though many private schools turn out to actually be affordable once you work through financial aid, many first-gen students, many low-income students don't understand that system. And so they see a a public school. We're known for our low cost of education, particularly in the California system. If you do two years at a community college and then transfer to UCI, it's even more affordable. So we're a target of opportunity for students who are already kind of low income, first in their family to go to college. We're attractive from that perspective. Now, what happens to many students is they end up at a large public university. In public universities, we have a challenge of providing that smaller experience that provides that real tight sense of community and the emotional support a student needs to really be successful once they're here. And this you know, many universities are discovering and and implementing excellent cohort-based programs where you have students in cohorts and and that helps them be more successful. UCI, it turns out, has sort of a natural built-in structural cohort system because we have so many academic schools. We have a separate school, biological sciences and physical sciences. We actually have two social science schools, social science and social ecology. Arts and humanities are separated into their own schools and the list goes on and on. So what it means is you start as one of 30,000 students, but as soon as you have a major, you're in a school of at most a few thousand, and now you're down to that small liberal arts school size. So that structure is what I have always suspected has been a key component of our success, and is something we're looking to leverage even better going into the future. So be you know even more intentional about it. So I think those are two very big pieces. One I am not sure of, that people point to that's structural is we don't have a football team. And there are those who claim 
that as a campus, we have less non-academic distractions, which has a plus and a minus, right? Certain students don't come here because they want to go to a place where they can have that big football experience. So we can probably do a little experiment. You know, now that our basketball team has made it past the first round in the NCAA tournament, as our basketball program goes, I hope that we can preserve our academic performance. <laughs> you know? yeah, that's a good, that last point is something I hadn't considered. That's very interesting. And it's not really about sports. It's really about, you know, we do have a long tradition of our students having a reputation of being excessively focused on academics in a good way. So that's an interesting element. You know, if you come here and you're among 30,000 students and they're all interested in studying, you know, but that's not something we really designed for, but it does seem to be a cultural element, you know, that we have that came about from our history. But I think the biggest thing is figuring out large universities. I think our challenge is figuring out how to create that success oriented environment for students, as opposed to we're going to weed you out environment. And having smaller schools helps. And I think the next stage for us, and I think for many of our our peers, and, and lots of people are talking about it, not just us, is really changing that faculty culture in the classroom. Like you said, the coaches, you know, if you're a coach, your number one goal is to win games. So you really want successful students. I mean, players, right? Like they go together. If your players don't get better and improve, you don't win. And if you don't win, things don't look good. And all of that is fun getting better and winning. At the university, I think sometimes traditionally you've had a little bit too more of a, we're going to select for the best as opposed to make everybody the best. You know, on that that last point, I was an honors program director for many years at different schools. And that was always the attitude in honors was you're a coach trying to help students do their best. I know it's not exactly applicable to what you're saying because you want that same attitude all across all students, not just those who are identified early on. But it's a good point. And, and we have it in pockets and we just need to, we need to expand it. One of the things, Steve, you know, I think structurally universities need to look at is, you know, often I think decisions we make at the undergraduate, even at the freshman first year level, are too often colored by the fact that we're thinking about, will this student be good for grad school? You know, make that decision when they apply to grad school. <laughs> you know, worry about that later. Give them four years to be the best they can. And if that best is good enough for grad school, great. If that best is better suited to be something else, that's great too, right? There, you know, it's not like one's better than the other, but, you know, I, I think of it in physics. Let's graduate the best possible undergraduate physics majors. And many of them will go on to great other things. And then some will go on to grad school. And then we can decide at the grad school admission type, both who wants to, because not everybody wants to, even the think, students we think should, and who really is you know, best suited for that. So Michael, you kind of touched on this, but you earned your undergraduate degree at a private research university. Yes. As you think back on your personal experience, do you think public research university leaders have something to learn from their private university colleagues? And is it possible that every public research university can be a student-centered research university, as is so often the case at private institutions? You know, I think, yes, we have to be a little... The one question we always have to deal with at the public universities is scale, right? You have to recognize, you know, UCI is 30,000 undergrads now and a little over 1,000 faculty, not the ratio that existed at the school I was at. So you do have to kind of think about, if you focus too narrowly just on the 
single model of individual faculty mentoring undergraduates in their, in their lab or their group or their research, you're going to have trouble because that's a little too narrow. But if you think about just the general, you know, I do feel the school I was at because it didn't have a law school, a medical school, some of the main professional schools, it really thought about the undergraduates from the way I mentioned earlier, which is, okay, how can we make these undergraduates as successful as possible? And that I find public universities start with that as their core mission, and we're often rightfully overwhelmed at how do we achieve that. So I don't think it's so much making public universities, the student-focused research thing. I think it's helping us figure out how to realize that goal in an environment where you have way more students than faculty. I think it's very, I think the piece we often forget is the faculty have figured out how to teach the students in sort of what I would call the old way. And if we can reimagine how we teach, we have a very scalable research. We will still be teaching those students, right? Cost the same amount of money before and after. Might cost some money to change how we teach. And I think we can do some very creative things. I think there's lessons to be learned there. But I think we are... One of the things I like about the Reinvention Collaborative, if I can make a plug for it, is you get to really interact with a number of other people who are at institutions with a similar situation as yourself. And you also get to interact with some that are different, and you learn from both of those. I don't know if I answered the question, Liz, but that felt like an answer. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah. I'll jump in just to unscale. Yeah. So is part of the, part of the uh, challenge to sort of decenter that faculty member being the source of knowledge and rather kind of think of graduate students, postdocs, undergraduates themselves as forming uh, learning communities where people are teaching and learning, you know, in different uh, ways, different modalities, not just everything running through that central core faculty member. Is that one thought you're having? I think that is exactly it, Steve. It's almost like you read my mind and planned that question ahead of time, which you actually didn't. So listeners, I assure you, that was listeners, actually... we did not plan that ahead of time. <laughs> that was not planned. You know, one, of, one of the things I'm pushing, uh, you know, big in STEM are learning assistants. Sorry, STEM is science, technology, engineering, math fields. It are learning assistants. And these are undergraduates that are embedded in, in, in the instructional team and in the classroom, say upper division undergraduates in a lower division class. And it's, it's a national model. It's used in a lot of different places. And I got into my position, I said, there's no reason this model doesn't work in every field, right? It, there's nothing science-specific about it. So I immediately went to roll it out campus-wide, and we've had great success. Eventually, we're going to hit some funding issues. But what it does is it creates an incredibly powerful and flexible instructional team. So there is always the piece of the undergrad who's the student as part of the learning team. And I don't want to underestimate that or undervalue that, but even just as an instructional team, thinking of the faculty, the grad students, and the undergrads is a powerful way to look at it, because I think in the past, like when I started here and, you know, the parents would come by, the question always was, oh, grad students are teaching, isn't that horrible? And first of all, I pointed out, they actually remember, like, what it's like to not know this stuff, so there's a big advantage to that. You know, you reach a certain point in your career, and you, a lot of this stuff you forgot that you ever didn't know it. And they're also a great role model for the students to see what it means to be a grad student and the, the possibility to become one. 
So now imagine you enhance that team and it's really the instructor, the grad students and the undergrads, but it has to be an integrated team. And I think that's part of what you were alluding to, Steve. I think too often in the past at large institutions, there was the faculty member and the grad students who weren't integrated and they were separate, right? They each did their own thing in the context of the class. And that can be problematic. But when you really, when you really look at this as a team and a multi-tiered experience and everybody bringing their own expertise, and then you throw in the students in the class and their engagement and, and you complete the picture that way, you really are leveraging a powerful system for learning that can handle some of this large scale that we have at public universities. I feel the coaching and sports metaphor lurking right there. Yes, yes. It, I mean, look, everybody has a coaching team. And, and in addition, the players are integrated into that. And you, you have a captain of the team who has certain responsibilities and, and all the way on down the line. So thinking of your book, Divine Science, Finding Reason at the Heart of Faith, do you think that undergraduate education should address enduring questions and ultimate values? If so, how best to do that? How best, especially at public universities? You know, I, something I am very worried about is an answer to how best to do this, I really think is reinvigorating the humanities. It's a real interest of mine. It always has been. We, as humans, ultimately, if we're not looking at some of these big questions, whether it's ethical questions, whether it's you know big meaning of life questions, whether it's how you approach and think about things which humanity has been dealing with throughout our history, through art, through literature, how we look back at the past and interpret it through history. These are disciplines that there's a reason everyone struggles and tries to have general education or core curriculum or all these other things, because these are disciplines that are critical. And you know, this is where this, you know, some of the experiences in the Reinvention Collaborative have been so powerful. I, I will never forget being at Georgia Tech, a fundamentally engineering institution, and hearing about their approach to humanities there. It was very powerful for me, and I've already come back and tried to engage our humanities faculty in this space. If you read things in the Chronicle or Inside Higher Ed or various spaces or opinions, a lot of people feel somewhere between the humanities being under attack to dead, depending on who you talk to. (laughs) And that's just, I think that's as big a problem as figuring out how to scale the general experience. And I'm always excited. I talk to engineering colleagues and they're like, yeah, our students, you know, can't get by with just science courses. And, and a very practical example here, you know, you mentioned, Steve, honors colleges. We, we're, we finally added a, a second track to our honors college and we have quarter systems. So it's six quarters and it takes science and social science and integrates it into a six quarter sequence called sustainable societies. And the main point is for the students to understand the interplay between economics, politics, psychology, ethics, human experience, and technical and scientific solutions to challenges that face society if you want to be a society that's not only sustainable but thrives. And it ends with capstone projects by the students to address open questions in this interdisciplinary way. That's a very small piece but if we can figure out how to get more of those experiences to our students across the humanities and social sciences, otherwise we're in trouble. I was, I joke, but it's true. Uh, when I was first a faculty and I had my peers read my proposals to give me advice and help me, you know, my, one of my colleagues, senior colleagues said, you know, you have to write your proposal 
as if the fate of the world depends on you doing this research and that you're the only human being in the universe who can actually accomplish the research. <laughs> you know, and my first thought was, great, how do I convince anyone that the fate of the world depends on shaving cream? But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was easy to convince them I'm the only one who can do it because I was the only one working on it. But that, that was not the hard problem. But I think in this space, you know, if we are not, someone else said to me recently, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, right now is a moment in our country where division is the obvious mode of activity. And we need to generate people who can wor work across division, who have, you know, the skills and the ability to tackle complex issues in their complexity and deal with the nuance and recognize there may not be just one answer. There may be multiple opinions and how to talk about multiple opinions and viewpoints in a productive fashion. And so many of those skills come from exactly these areas you mentioned in your list, Liz. And it's, it's about looking at these bigger questions and struggling with them because many of them don't have an obvious answer and reasonably could come down from many sides. And that's one of the things I try to do with my book is it's more a personal journey than really an argument for one side or the other. And it says, look, questions are the important things. If we're afraid to ask questions, we don't make progress. Asking questions can often be very challenging because the answers aren't obvious. And I mentioned, you know, this is where I am in my journey of answering these questions, but I know I'm not done yet. I don't have final answers. And part of the reason to write the book was to start a conversation where I might make it to the next level of my answers by engaging people. And so if we can get our students engaged in that hard question asking, I think we'll have made a huge impact for society and for the survival of the human race. And it's the one place in my life where I can go back to that original vice and say, yes, the fate of the human race depends on us doing this. Yeah, no joke, right? I mean, like, that's what I was thinking. We live in a time of division in this country and in lots of countries, but there's also the another way of looking at it, which I know you're very familiar with, uh, what we're hinting at, which is we live in a time of really extraordinary uh, natural ecological crises, such yes. that your new program in the honors program is going to help students address and think about synthetically pulling things together so yes. they can grasp hold of it. Because one of the one of its qualities is it's so multifaceted and vast that it sometimes defies people's ability to conceptualize it. Yeah. And so, you know. Just real quickly on that, Steve, you know, somebody made the comment the other day, you know, climate change is really a geological scale thing, not a annual thing. And so that's well, one of the challenges people have grasping it. Yeah, they need ways of thinking, you know, that, that allow them to do that. And I was just imagining this case you're making for the humanities really relating to every student and every major. Oh, um, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think more and more uh, education leaders who are interested in undergraduate education really have to grasp and grapple with what you're doing at UCI, you and your colleagues. This feels like a front burner issue for all of us. No, I think it is. And I think, you know, I, I've had some very candid meetings with our, my humanities faculty. And it's an interesting tension and challenge because we are a research university. And, you know, there's always that, I think, when you say the word research, there's an unconscious bias towards the sciences. You know, when I randomly poll people, if you throw that word out there, people think of labs, they think of people in white coats. And it's somehow held as a gold standard that I think puts us in a, in, a, in a bad position. And when you're at a research university and you have a whole field, the humanities and, and other aspects of the university, 
worried about whether or not their research will be taken seriously. Their energy all gets driven there. And we don't have the energy to discuss, but what about our undergraduates who need exposure to this too? And how are we serving them? And how are we integrating this across the campus? And buying and finding the time for people to have that important conversation is one of the challenges. And ironing too. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Well, Coach Denon. Yeah. Any last words for our uh, words of wisdom for our listeners? Well, you know, I think I'm going to loop back to that first question about how a physicist ends up in this role. And I think it's true for faculty as, as well as students. I constantly am reminded how much life is about finding something you're passionate about, but also understanding where you can have an impact. You know, and I look at my academic career, and as faculty, you know, I, I, I mentioned I grew up with a, a father who was a professor. You know, as a faculty member, you know, obviously the administration was evil and the enemy, and I would never become one. you know what i grew to realize and and you know i i was chair of our council on educational policy i worked in the academic senate i then you know decided to take on this role and thankfully was given it it's recognizing those aspects where you can really impact things that are important to you and being honest with yourself and not you know falling subject to some of the external pressures. You know, I always, I found myself constantly telling students, you know, don't become a doctor and engineer just because that's what you're told you have to do. What's your passion? And so I thought to myself, as I discovered what this role would be and my ability to impact students and impact culture around teaching, you know, don't not do it because in your head, you've been told you have to be a faculty and not an administrator. Sort of embrace the pathways to, to achieving, you know, things that are important to you. And it's so far, knock on wood, it's worked out awesome. It's, it's you know, been a great experience. As with everything, there's things that are somewhat problematic, but that's true of any job in life. And, and those, those are just a minor blip on, on all the fun stuff I get to do. Well, on behalf of our members and listeners, Steve and I would like to thank Dr. Michael Denon, Dean of Undergraduate Education and Vice Provost for Teaching and Learning at UC Irvine for chatting with us today. Thanks, Michael. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. I love talking about this stuff. And thanks to all of our listeners for listening to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the Reinvention Collaborative, check us out at reinventioncollaborative, all one word, dot org. RC members can listen to an extended version of this interview at the members section of this site. 